Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It's nice to do one of these solos from home. Um, As you might recall, last week was a little phoned in and weird, also plagued by meteorological challenges. And now I feel like I haven't talked to you guys in a million years. So much uh, stuff going on. So where to begin? Let's start with my conversation with with, uh, Annie McCarthy. I got less blowback. I mean, I got some nasty emails and all that kind of stuff, but the comment section was generally pretty supportive, and that was nice and appreciated. I'm glad that people recognized that I was trying to be skeptical in parts while also giving Andy plenty of time and space to make his case. And a friend of mine sent me an email about it saying it was a great interview or a great conversation, and he he summarized his view of Andy's position as persuasive, if not necessarily convincing. And that's sort of where I come down. I think he makes good arguments, defensible arguments, and unlike Ken White's position, sincere arguments. But, you know, there's a lot of flex and sincerity. You know, people, like, this is not a point I'm naming at at Andy. I'm just saying that, like, I think people go way, and I, I have a tendency to do this too, and I get into fights just because it's very difficult for me to imagine that some people don't know better. I think it's a natural human response to when somebody makes an argument that's outside of your own reality is to assume they're lying when in reality you just see things differently and you have different biases that are playing in to your worldview. And I'm not saying that people don't lie out there. I'm just saying that it's, it's, it's less often an explanation for people's positions um, and I can tell you when, when my first book came out, the number of people, reviewers, panelists, you know, I would do panel events with, that kind of thing, who would just flat out say I was lying or I was being dishonest um, in my argument. Um, it was just huge. And it, I, I, can't, I can't remember now, but there's this line from Homer Simpson where, you know, he would say, you know, call me a traitor. I'm completely butchering it, but it was something like, call me a traitor call me a murderer, but don't call me a porn star or something like that. And I, that's sort of how I felt. It's like, I, and sometimes would, I, I, and I guess this has been a hang up of mine for a very long time is like, I really, I mean, I'll argue with you. I'll take offense if you call me bad names and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, there's something that really bums, pisses me off when people assume that I'm lying, right? That I don't have the integrity to actually say what I believe to be true. And I think that it kind of explains my reaction to a lot of the last 10 years. But anyway, getting back to, to Andy, I think he's, 
you know, I, I think it is just wrong and unfair to him to accuse him of arguing in, you know, dishonesty or bad faith. But I also think that he is emphasizing arguments and criticisms and facts that I just don't feel exhaust the realm of good faith interpretations or understandings of the, of the issues at play. And so I think his argument and his predictions about what the court will do or could do and all that kind of stuff or why, and certainly I think his arguments about why Smith should have thought twice about bringing some of these charges, I think they're all persuasive in their own right, but not necessarily convincing. And we'll see. You know, my hunch is, is that Andy will be proven more right than a lot of the people screaming, you're lying, you're making it up, you're, you're insane, this is crazy. He'll be more persuasive than those people would like, but um, or, or it would be proven more right than those people would like, but he won't necessarily be entirely vindicated, which is something he allowed for. You know, I mean, we talked about this quite a bit. You know, he allowed for the fact that, like, given the hothouse environment, given the pressures on the Supreme Court, given the, the issues at play, it is entirely possible that this, line, this consistent line of reasoning about, about fraud gets thrown out, out the window because of all these other considerations. But anyway, enough about Andy. He's a good man and a, and a friend, and um, I was glad to have him on. So, but let's stay on this Trump stuff for a second. So, like, I've been catching up with my friends at NR and other places and the arguments for and against all of this stuff. And I think I hinted at, or I, 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 I teased some of this stuff when I was talking to Andy, but like, I honestly and sincerely think that people who are against, I don't want to say they're against prosecuting Trump because I have every confidence in the world that if Smith could have brought the goods and made a clear, clear connection between sort of Trump fomenting violence, if there are, text message, DMs, recordings, memos, whatever, where Trump says, you know, in private, okay, the only way out of this is to storm the Capitol. You know, it's a shame we're going to have to beat up some cops, but maybe we can have them join us. But we got to get in there and scare the crap out of um, Congress to get them to do this thing. You know, if, if you could prove something like that or some other sort of very straightforward, I know I didn't win, but we got to hold on to this thing. So create the fake collectors, do this, do that, whatever, right? I mean, if it was just smoking guns all the way down, Andy would be on board. Rich Lowry would be on board. You know, basically everybody I know at National Review would be on board. They're all supportive to one extent or another of the idea that Trump very clearly broke the law with the Mar-a-Lago case. But anyway, the criticisms of the Jack Smith indictments, how to put this, so I was listening to Dominic Pino, who I like a lot. Um, I don't know him well personally. He's one of the new whippersnappers at NR, um, but he does great work. He made this case that, you know, tracks very closely to the column I wrote this week about, you know, the, how the impeachment process is irrevocably, irrevocably broken. And its breakdown is, symbi is symbolic of the larger problems with our systemic failure in our society, in our politics. And, you know, he's, you know, he's making the case, and I think he's right, you know, he's making the case that the standards of evidence, the, the nature of the kind of things that are impeachable, they fall short of the standards of a criminal trial for the obvious reason that it's a political trial and that you can bring things in, you can bring in charges, 
you know, that talk about violating the public trust, that talk about corruptly falling short of the best interests of the country, you know, that things that you wouldn't necessarily get criminally charged for, but are incredibly damning for a president of the United States and worthy of impeachment and removal. And he laid it out very well, agreed with it entirely. And then he says, and we all understand it. We all understand impeachment uh, is supposed to work that way. And that's the only place where I disagree with him. And I don't think he really would object to this objection. But we don't all understand that impeachment should work this way. I have written many times now, including this column, you know, this week, that the, and I went on a rant about this last week on the Dispatch podcast, there is an infuriating tendency during these impeachment trials. We've now had three and a quarter century where lawyers flood the zone at the behest of television bookers. So there's a lot of blame to go around. Lawyers flood the zone and fill the airways with legalistic verbiage, you know, precedent this and, you know, mens rea that. And, you know, Dershowitz gets out there and says, you can't impeach if you don't meet this standard. And, and you know, and, and my friends, friends of mine like Andy and Sarah and David, they'll say, you know, you you can impeach if you meet this standard and blah, 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 blah. And every now and then Jonathan Turley or whoever will have this little sort of, you know, of course, this is a political process and not a, you know, not a legal process, but, you know, it's presided over by, you know, the ch chief justice of the Supreme Court. And it's, you know, it's supposed to be a trial nonetheless. And these are the standards and this is the president, Warren Hastings and blah, 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 blah. And they leave this impression that, legalistic standards are the only standards that matter. And it's amazing when you go and you read, and there are hundreds and hundreds of these op-eds of and about and around impeachment from all these TV lawyers and other lawyers um, who are not necessarily all bad people, but they just get so high on their own legal farts on all this stuff. And they get into these weeds about this precedent and this standard and what the constitution implies with this and blah, 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 blah. And they leave the impression that it would be some incredible miscarriage of justice to impeach and remove a president for something that falls short of a clear-cut crime. And, you know, and look, again, blame is all over the place. The founding fathers deserve a lot of blame here, too, because, I mean, I, I think they couldn't have foreseen it, but the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors is... Such a weird phrase. And maybe it wasn't when they were writing the damn thing. But, you know, originally the founding fathers wanted it to be that impeachable offense would include things like maladministration. And maladministration sort of gives a better sense of things, right? It's not the best word in the world either. But high crimes makes it sound like high crimes, right? But then what the hell is misdemeanors doing in there? So it's treason or parking tickets. But regardless, you get this, this, this environment that makes it sound like it is the gravest thing in the world to remove a president from office if they haven't done something that is just overtly and clearly criminal. I think that is just not what the founding fathers intended. It's not how impeachment should work. It's, um, and it's, it's not what the actual constitution says. And yet we get this, 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 this environment that is so unbelievably dysfunctional. And then it feeds into all of this, these other garbage arguments about how impeachments overturn the will of the voters. In no way, shape, or form does impeachment and removal overturn the will of voters. I mean, even, even, a, even a miscarriage, even a bad impeachment 
and removal would not overturn the will of the voters. You know why? Because in this country, for reasons that aren't about the internal wisdom of the founding fathers, but more have to do with the fact that their first stab at this messed stuff up, we elect vice presidents and presidents on the same frickin' ticket. If you, if you impeached and removed Bill Clinton, you wouldn't have made Bob Dole or, you know, George H.W. Pre- Bush president. You would have made Al Gore president, and he probably would have gotten reelected if he gotten made president. If you impeached and removed Donald Trump, you wouldn't have made Hillary Clinton president. You would have made Mike Pence president. And Mike Pence, vice presidents get just as many votes in our system as presidents do. Moreover, I mean, the, the thing that really bothers me about this overturning the will of the people nonsense is that. There's not a single voter in America who voted for Trump to try to bully the Ukrainian government to indict Joe Biden or whatever the hell that was, right? Not a single one. There wasn't a single American who voted for Donald Trump in either election to encourage mobs to, to, to swarm the Capitol and, 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 and then storm the Capitol. It was just not... Anything that people voted for, because there's this thing about the space-time continuum that says you can't willfully vote for behavior that is really unpredictable and is in the future. And it was something of a, it was sort of a self-slander from all of the Trumpistas who would say, oh, well, you can't overturn the will of the American people because they voted for Donald Trump. Well, they didn't vote for Donald Trump to do whatever the hell he wanted. They voted for Donald Trump to be president, and presidents are constrained. There are checks on presidential power, and one of them is impeachment. But we don't think of impeachment that way. We have, we have put impeachment on such a pedestal that is basically, we can't, you know, the little, we can't bring the little hammer to it and, you know, break glass in case of emergency anymore. And I honestly think, you know, a no-confidence vote kind of thing would be better if we're going to have an imperial presidency, if we're going to give it, insane powers that were never intended, that are not in the Constitution, if all these executive orders are going to continue the way they are, it should be easier to remove presidents from office. But that's not the world we live in. And so anyway, the the real point I want to get to about all this is that what bothers me, and it's kind of an atmospheric complaint, right? It is a complaint about the general thrust of certain kinds of arguments rather than, I don't want to get in the weeds of every specific argument. But there is this approach to criticizing the Smith indictments or the latest indictments. And I'm, look, I'm totally on board. I think the Bragg indictment was terrible. It had very bad unintended consequences. Starting this era of impeaching, of indicting presidents with the weakest and flimsiest and dumbest of the indictments was bad because it kind of inoculated the Republican electorate to think, okay, these are all BS. It should have been, you know, the first time you do it should be for really strong reasons, which is why I think the Mar-a-Lago one was the best one. But anyway, there is this, tendency to say, well, you know, if we do, I was listening to Charlie Cook, you know, and everyone knows I love Charlie. There are these dangers that if we do this, it is possible that we will so expand the notion of fraud that it'll become a tool for the weaponization of politics and yada, 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 something like that. And and you may be right, but may be true. And you read, you know, other people about this stuff who are less exacting and less careful um, and less literate. And It's all about how going after Trump will have all sorts of moral hazards, will have all sorts of unintended consequences, um, will set all sorts of bad precedents for the future. And again, 
I am not dismissing all of those arguments. It is entirely possible. It is plausible. It is probable that that is true in one circumstance or another. Fine. But the the problem I have with those arguments is they tend to discount or wholly ignore the moral hazard, the bad precedent, the unintended consequences that will come from not doing anything all, at all about Trump, right? Sending the signal into the future that you can try to steal an election through fraud. I mean, I, I, if you follow this stuff going on with the Michigan electors, right, the entire Trump stop to steal thing may not meet all the definitions of fraud, but there are lots of subordinate parts that just simply meet the definition of fraud in the most obvious way. These Michigan electors had forged documents. They lied about, you know, their legitimacy. They lied about, you know, the, the, the process by which they got these, you know, they did, were just, it's fraud, right? It's just straight up fraud. Um, or I'm sorry, since we have these Jesuitical arguments about the meaning of fraud in terms of criminal conduct, absolutely fraudulent, right? If we send the signal that the president of the United States can encourage, I'm not saying incite, but can encourage and certainly condone, right? He wants to give out pardons. He says these the January 6th people are great people who've been railroaded. He celebrates, you know, some of the worst people in that whole mob. If we send the signal into the future that a president can do all of the things that Donald Trump clearly and obviously did, that even critics of Jack Smith concede are incredibly damning as they come out in the as laid out in the indictment, and say there are really no consequences or, or sufficiently small consequences that you can run again for president and be the front runner for the nomination um, just four years later, that is not a good precedent to lay down for the future, right? Politics, you know, this is part of the thing I got into with Andy. This is like, you know, you can condemn the political biases in this process that have led to charging Donald Trump. You can condemn the idea that the FBI and the DOJ are going to get into the business of criminalizing electoral disagreement. Fine with all of those concerns. But you got to start with the fact that Donald Trump put us on this path. You know, people say, oh, the politicization of the Justice Department. He's openly running on, first of all, the promise to throw out the, the criminal case against him. <laughs> we are so far down the road of politicizing criminal justice issues. This is a guy who ran on lock her up, right? This is a guy who put immense pressure on the entire DOJ to go along with this scheme uh, to steal the election. The idea that somehow the bulk of the criticism should be revert, and I forget the bulk of the criticism, the bulk of the concern about the bad precedents this will set for the future by trying to hold the guy accountable rather than thinking about the bad precedents it will set by not trying to hold the guy accountable really bothers me. It's, 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 it's of a piece with this larger trend about Donald Trump, like the classic thing where you get the angry drunk uncle who comes to Thanksgiving, right, who is really easy to set off. And maybe he's a bigot, maybe he's an anti-Semite, maybe he's just an incredibly obnoxious Mets fan. I don't know, right? You pick your poison. But you got this, this guy who you have to invite, and then you say something that sets him off. And everyone gets mad at you. Everyone says, why'd you do that? You knew he was like this, right? 
This is what our entire country has done in response, or large parts of our country and our political system, particularly on the right, have done vis-a-vis Donald Trump. His pathologies, his dysfunctions, his obnoxiousness are taken as a given. They are part of the state of play of our politics and our life. And anybody who responds to them in ways that set Trump off or make other people have to take a position on Trump, they're the ones who are doing something wrong. That's why people hate, so many people hate Liz Cheney now. It's because she was simply pointing out, she was like saying, we can't keep tolerating this nonsense. That's why, you know, you know, people hate people. So many people hate me is because, and David French and a bunch of us, you know, because we wouldn't just like pretend that the crazy drunk uncle was totally normal and doing fine. Right. This dynamic, I think, plays into all this stuff about the response to to January 6th, to stealing the election, to Trump in general. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, so many rank and file Republicans can't stand Chris Christie is because he's 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 telling Republicans stuff they know to be true. You know, I mean, yeah, there are people who literally think Trump did nothing wrong. This is all fake and all that kind of stuff. I suspect that even the people who say that the pollsters, even the people who at one level of consciousness, sincerely, you know, pick a pass a lie detector to believe it. I still think that that conviction is so precariously held in their minds that one of the reasons they get so angry is because it, that, that conviction is so susceptible to doubt, so susceptible to, dis, to, to being disproven. So you get this sort of like, incredibly defensive, protective thing. Do not come anywhere near, you know, me, because if you unsettle, if you jostle me even a little bit, I might drop this precious Fabergé egg of belief that thinks that Donald Donald Trump is this, you know, messianic figure and a wonderful man and a family man and an honest and a fighter and blah, 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 blah. Um, I want to hold on to this belief so... You get really, really angry. They get really, really angry when people un- try to unsettle that belief. I see so much of this stuff in the reaction to the indictments as sort of of a piece with all of that. And I find it really, really frustrating. All right. Enough of all that. My apologies. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I know I'm not supposed to talk about stuff on Twitter, but I figure when um, a U.S. senator comes after me on Twitter, that re- reaches a level of significance that I can at least talk about it for a second. Yesterday, I was on Inside Politics on CNN, and um, we were talking about some, you know, how DeSantis isn't doing well with small donors. And I made a sort of bit of a detour and made this point that I've made before that lots of people have made that, you know, all of the excitement, enthusiasm about small donors that we saw, I don't know, starting like 10, 15 years ago, um, I always associate it with well, I mean, 20 years ago was with Howard Dean, but really with with Bernie Sanders. What was it, the 2012 cycle, something like that? But there was all this talk about how this is awesome, this is direct democracy, this is civic participation, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, some of it is that, and that's all fine. But this idea that small donors are going to make our politics better was just not true. It turned out not to be true. That the optimism and hope and cheery, you know, Uh, kumbaya about all of that was um, misplaced. And now small donors are actually one of the biggest problems for democracy, for the GOP, because large donors actually have a strategic view about moderation, who can win, who can't. Small donors really are just venting their spleen with their credit card, and, um, and they lock candidates into positions that can hurt them in the general election. Such an important point. You know, the reality is, I know for a fact um, because I've talked to senators about this, that there are senators on the Hill, I'll just say as a category, everyone from like Josh Hawley to Lindsey Graham to J.D. Vance, they know that if they go on the right Fox News show at the right time and wave the bloody toga about this issue or that issue of the day and say the only way I can take on the establishment is with the help of people like you who share my view in this mission and blah, 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 blah. Um, and they get inundated with, you know, small donations from people putting, you know, 10, 25, 50 bucks, um, sometimes recurring monthly, right? That's the dream on their credit cards. And this allows them to not have to go shake the tin cup with, with big donors. And so anyway, I made this point that like, one of the things you, you can you can hate big money in politics and talk about how billionaires are also terrible and all that kind of stuff all you like. But one of the things that um, big donors care about are like nuts and bolts things about policy and about electability. There are certainly big donors who care about this stuff more and care about this stuff less who make different bets on different kinds of politicians. There are obviously big donors who care so, so much about specific issues that they will back candidates that don't have a chance to win, but they'll get their ideas out there. There's a lot of diversity out there. It's like this Marxian hogwash that, you know, the billionaire class is a monolithic thing. We've talked about it a million times. It's all nonsense, right? There are, for every George Soros type, there's a uh, uh, Charles Koch type, right? There are people who have fundamental disagreements who are engaged in the political process at the, at the highest end of the income distribution. But their concerns tend to be a little different, the concerns of Tucker Carlson addicts, right? Or Steve Bannon addicts. Um, 
there are, you know, the people, if you believe that the deep state is coming for your mattress tags and only J.D. Vance is speaking truth to power about it, um, you don't really care about things like electability or, or whether they're in favor of Congress moving back to regular order or whatever, right? It's, or even tax reform, right? I mean, it's like you are mouse-clicking single-issue outrage uh, in the moment. And these kinds of small donors who sustain people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates are, I think, part of the problem in American politics. The I, So this is the thing. I said this on CNN and then this Nick, I can't, I don't remember how to pronounce it, Fundarko. I don't mean it as an offensive thing. I just don't know how, I've never said his name out loud before. This guy, Nick something at Newsbusters or Media Research Center, tweeted out a clip of it saying that I was, you know, you know, dunking on or knocking on or criticizing the role of small donors, which is true. I was. I am. Unapologetically. And um, I thought it was a little cowardly that he didn't like, you know, tag me in the tweet, you know, to say, or I'm, and I'm going to, for the record, I'm going to continue to call it Twitter and I'm going to continue to call them tweets. I'm not going to be saying, you know, as so-and-so, um, I don't know how that works. Um, I mean, it's, it's like branding something that requires stalking like a Bushman uh, strikes me as really dumb marketing decision by, by Musk, but whatevs. So anyway, put this tweet out and, and the sort of the, the bot army, the troll army that, that, you know, that I don't know if it was Vance who activated it or if it was media research center activated it or whatever, but I just got her getting deluged with all of this, you know, you're such an elitist, you know, blah, 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 all this nonsense stuff. Vance did this thing where he criticized, he said of me that, you know, I'm telling the world that I'm upset that the people who pay my salaries no longer have influence in politics or something like that. And I got to tell you, J.D. Vance is really, really bad at guessing my motives. I, I, I don't, I, I sincerely, look, I, I get it. If you're just some trollish bot on Twitter who doesn't know very much about me, my point about small donors might seem like a shocking thing that someone could think this, right? Because like this often happens, you know, I'm, I don't believe that transparency is good. Let me put it, put it another way. I think the, the value of transparency in politics has been wildly exaggerated. And you've, you've heard this argument from me before. We need more closed door rooms where people can actually negotiate in good faith without getting hung out to dry. You cannot negotiate in public. Anyway, but every now and then when I say transparency is, you know, when I, when I dunk on transparency a little bit, someone, oh, I dare you, you just want to, you know, have the star chambers and the egg council run everything. And it's all nonsense. And I, so I get it. Like, if you don't know anything about me, but if you do know anything about me and the guys at Newsbusters know about me and Vance knows about me, I've been talking about how primaries are bad till I'm blue in the face for years. I've been talking about how populism is bad for decades. So why it should surprise anybody that I have a problem with monetizing populism um, is beyond me. And again, I don't think it's necessarily bad faith on some people's part. It obviously is. Um, but on a lot of people's part, it's just they don't know anything about me 
or they haven't thought through the issue or they um, they just like, you know, performative nonsense. But just to be clear, like I've, you know, in that column I wrote, you know, go back and see the column I wrote. Part of my, part of my point about the, the collective failure of our political system is this point, which you've heard me talk about a million times, which is that campaign finance reform weakened the parties. And how many times have I talked here about how the parties... Um, are too weak, not too strong, and that weak parties create strong partisanship. Well, one of the reasons why the parties are weak isn't just because they they let independent expenditures into super PACs, you know, compete compete with with parties. That's part of it. But part of it is just that that you now have these mass markets for crowdsourcing fundraising. Um, that allow demagogues to demagogue without being concerned by what, you know, the sort of what, whether it'll turn off big donors, whether it'll turn off party elites. People talk about how it's just obvious that elites are bad and the common people are good. Um, as if, like, this is something everybody understands. And it's just nonsense. Some elites are terrible. Some forms of, some forms of elitism are terrible. But many, you know, the whole idea, like, it's so weird. You say, you talk to people and they think that elites are terrible, but leaders are really important. What the F do you think leaders are if not elites, right? Elitism is bad, but we really need statesmen. Well, statesmen are elites. And so you can have elites doing bad things, but you can't have, and this is like, this is one of the points that Deneen was such a mess on in his book. You know, he, he spends all this time in the first third railing about how evil elites are and how the we, the common man is good. It's like he's, he wants to wait until he's confident none of the populist crowd is reading anymore. So he then changes the conversation to conceding well, of course, you need elites. You know, this aristo populism that he wants to do requires elites, just requires elites who agree with, with Patrick Deneen, right? Everybody believes in elites, except tr true anarchists. The problem is sociology doesn't care what anarchists have to say. There has never been a system where of any sophistication, uh, uh, you know, including, I think, the hunter-gatherer, you know, platoons of pre-agricultural revolution humanity. There's never been an organization that doesn't generate some form of elite, someone who has more clout, more authority, more deference to make decisions uh, for the good of the group than somebody else. It just doesn't happen. This was the basic point of what's his name? Michelle's iron law of oligarchy, which sounds scary, right? Because first of all, it's from like German stuff and iron law sounds like cold and unfeeling and oligarchy is super scary, but there's nothing super scary about it. What Michels did was he studied the primary example that he was studying was the, uh, the social democratic party of Germany or something like that. And it was a good liberal democratic kind of party. And he, f he found by studying it that it is unavoidable to have a small group of people with outsized power in an organization, because even if it's, even if you try to structure it so that everything is made, all decisions are made collectively and all that kind of stuff, there's somebody who's just got to handle the paperwork. Got to handle the, um, um, I can't remember exactly what he calls it. It's like administrative knowledge or informational secrets or something, something clever. And the point is, is that the person who controls 
the sort of the nexus of information coming in eventually has power because of that information to goose things in one direction or another. And that becomes formalized as people do more and more transactions with that person, because that's the person you go to when you want something and you get into these exchange favor exchange kind of thing. And that gives them even more power and access to more information until they're either de facto or de jure running things. And it is just, this is how organizations work. There's always that one sort of mom on the parent teacher on the, you know, the parents committee of some high school who's more powerful than the other moms or dads or whatever, because she's, the one who's actually, you know, making the calls and, and assigning people to go get the picnic plates or the whatever, right? I mean, it's just, this is how life works. So elitism is just a thing out there, but you, I, you get these people who seem to think that simply by virtue of being a member of something that could be described as an elite, that makes them bad. And the people who describe themselves accurately or not as part of the common you know, the, the great unwashed, that makes them good. There are a lot of jerks in the great unwashed and a lot of good people among the elites and vice versa. If you have any sympathy towards my view that populism, it tends to be unhealthy in politics, particularly when it's a sustained over time because it's so distortive of the mechanisms and procedures of a healthy democracy and a constitutional republic, then it's just a sort of an obvious point that monetizing the angriest, most online people in our politics and weaponizing their anger and turning it into a revenue stream is not particularly good for American politics. And it's not particularly good for democracy. And it's not particularly good for society in general. And it was just, it's amazing. These people who think quoting me accurately or summarizing my views correctly is some sort of deep burn. I own this position entirely without apology. I am totally open to people pointing out examples where this complaint doesn't hold true. And I think there are some. If you look at the list of the people who benefit the most from small donors, not all of them are terrible people. I think Dan Crenshaw is on the list, but so is Marjorie Taylor Greene. But the thing is, Dan Crenshaw could get money from big donors. Marjorie Taylor Greene probably has a harder time. That seems to me not to be evidence against my position, but evidence for my position. If you're an outrageous demagogue, the people you're most likely to be able to get money from are people who want outrageous demagogues to have a louder voice in our politics. And those people are going to be people who tend to be locked out, bitter, angry, whatever. And you can get mad at me all day long. I am not going to tell you that I'm going to back off on this. Anyway, so, you know, I just got so slammed last night by jackasses. Um, an ignorami on this that I just figured I don't want to write about it, but I wanted to get at it. Oh, so one last point. It was funny. Um, I was recently rereading. There was this great profile of Samuel Huntington from 2001 that I've been recently rereading. Um, it was in the Atlantic. It's funny. You've heard me. I wrote about it. And I've used this phrase in liberal fascism. It's a term that I think is sort of central to my worldview. And I, if you had asked me a week ago, where did you come up with it? I would have said, oh, I, I think I made it up, but I don't know. Maybe I didn't. Um, or maybe I got it from Tom Sowell or something like that. But I've been using the phrase for so long that I just kind of feel like it's my phrase, whatever. And I, longtime listeners and readers will, will recognize it instantly. It's this idea of the unity of goodness, right? This idea that all good things go together. And I think this is sort of part and parcel of the cult of unity, which again, been talking about for a really long time. Just Google 
Jonah Goldberg and Cult of Unity, and you'll see what I mean. But anyway, it turns out that the first time I, well, I don't even know it was the first time, but the earliest time I can document that I read the phrase was, it was a line from Samuel Huntington uh, in this Atlantic profile. The funny thing is, is it came to mind in part because he makes this point when he's illustrating the problem with the unity of goodness is, is that sometimes, quote unquote, bad things in society have beneficial consequences, right? I mean, again, this is very Goldbergian. All, how many times have I talked about how all bad things have a silver lining and all good things have a, um, a dark lining, right? There's, there are, there are um, no unalloyed good things in life. The cutest puppy in the world will still take a dump on your carpet, right? Um, the greatest baby in the world will still have a loaded diaper that you have to deal with. Everything comes with a downside. It's just that some things are so good that the downsides are kind of trivial. And, you know, babies are a great example of that. Babies can keep you up at night and all that kind of stuff. But anybody who's had a, I don't say anybody, but most people, you know, particularly when you don't have babies around anymore, and I miss babies, um, uh, you realize that all the good stuff just swamps the bad stuff. But there's bad stuff. And when you're a young parent with, with young kids, you sometimes think that the bad stuff is much worse and the good stuff gets, you know, becomes old hat a little bit. And I get that, you know, sleep deprivation and dealing with loaded diapers will do that to you. But uh, I think anybody who's been through the whole thing recognizes that the distribution of good to bad is much different and way on the side of the good. Um, but anyway, that's, I, sorry, I just, in the last three weeks, I got to hang out with a bunch of really awesome babies and it just reminded me how much I like babies. Um, and, you know, and the official dispatch position on, you know, maternity and paternity leave is babies are good. But where was I? Oh, Samuel Huntington, right? So Samuel Huntington, he made this point that in India, India was bigger but poorer than a lot of other countries for a very long time. A lot of other countries in the region and around, you know, just globally, whatever. But it was also politically much more stable. And part of his point was that that stability was the byproduct of the fact that the vast mass of the population was illiterate. Now, illiteracy is bad, all things being equal, right? We are for improving literacy rates. And, and, um, and one of the great things about liberal democratic capitalism is it's better at that than anything else, than any, any other system over time. But whatever. But the illiteracy of the rural poor in India meant that they made many fewer demands of government because they couldn't even articulate the demands. They didn't have the basic, I mean, literacy is like one of the most basic tools for political organization and, and petitioning the government. And if, if the masses are unable to sort of organize at the most basic political level because of illiteracy, it allowed the educated elites to have a lot more control over the development of the country. Part of, you know, Huntington's point, again, he was saying this a long time ago, it was part of, you know, his book, Political Order, I think. But part of his point about why India's politics had started to become much more unstable is that you started to have vast new segments of society uh, being taken up by the literate urban masses, right? The people were getting just rich enough to afford to be literate, to move to cities, you know, and the causal arrows work both ways. They got 
you know, more prosperous because they move to cities and they move to cities to get more prosperous. You can chicken and egg and all that stuff all day long. But the fact is at scale, huge numbers of people moving to cities where demand for, you know, and cities require services the way rural farming, subsistence farming doesn't. And they're also getting educated. And so these huge new constituencies making demands of government made politics a lot more unstable. And, you know, this is part of the argument about where fascism actually comes from his, as a historical phenomenon is, is um, the countries that were the last to unify and the last to urbanize and the last to industrialize in Europe were basically Italy and Germany. And, and so they were, they were, their cities were full of young, deracinated, dislocated men who were alienated, who got really nostalgic about what they sort of imagined life was like in traditional agriculture. And they kind of craved this sort of reactionary return to the past thing, while at the same time not actually wanting to leave the cities to get um, to go work on the land and all that kind of thing. Um, you saw a lot of this in, you know, in America as well in the 1930s. And um, uh, though, you know, America's a different creature for all sorts of reasons we talked about a million times. But um, vast changes in the demographics of a society towards urbanization, literacy, um, 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 and participation in general in politics can be really dislocating. And anyway, I, I, I'm not saying that the people, that small donors are like the Indian uh, lower middle class literate city dwellers of, of 1993 or anything like that. I'm just making this point that not all good things necessarily go together. You can talk all you like about how wonderful it is that more people are getting involved in civic participation and blah, blah. You know, all these people are coming out at me. Don't you understand? This is just called being getting involved and all that kind of stuff. I'm not a big sort of celebrator of joining. And I certainly don't think that all forms of joining are equal. If you really think you're being, if you're being, if you really think you're being a really good citizen by sitting on your couch and watching J.D. Vance spew his nonsense or Josh Hawley spew his nonsense on, you know, on Hannity's show and you're a good citizen because you then swipe your credit card to send 10 bucks to them. I'm, I, I just don't have, you know, I'm checking my, my attaboy sack right now and I just don't have any attaboys for you. I don't think that makes you a better citizen than somebody who doesn't vote but like volunteers in his community and is a good neighbor and a good parent and, you know, and helps run a softball league or something like that. I think that person is a much better citizen who doesn't have cable, doesn't even vote, but is actually involved in his own community. To which I mean, like, the, the astroturfing of the concepts of citizenship and civic participation is one of the hallmarks of the really stupid time that we're living in politically. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, so we talked about this very briefly on the Dispatch podcast. Oh, I'll, I'll get to this in a second. I'm sorry. I, I, a couple things I want to say. Adam, our super producer, uh, head producer of uh, our audio division. Uh, I don't know what we're supposed, what words we're supposed to use for all that, but he did a interview with, um, and I'm forgetting his name right now, uh, an Israeli writer, journalist, political observer about Israel's political problems and the mess around this constitutional stuff, um, this constitutional reform thing. And I really recommend it. Seriously, I really, really recommend it. Um, you don't have to go all the way to the end if you feel like you got out of it. But like, you know, I had I had Padarts on here. I had somebody else. And I've tried to sort of get at the mess that is the current constitutional thing, but also the, you know, there's the, the Supreme Court reform thing they're trying to do there, but also the broader problem with Israel's political system. And I thought Pod did a good job. He didn't, you know, having now listened to this other thing, I don't think he said anything that was wrong, but it's not incumbent upon John or, or, or Abe Greenwald or any of these guys to get super weedy on this stuff. And, and, but even from, you know, from what I had read and from, from John's descriptions about it, it's, I've been saying around here for a bit now, just how Fakakta Israel's political system is. But after listening to this podcast that Adam did, it didn't prove me wrong about anything. I mean, that's, I guess that's part of the reason why I liked it is it confirmed my impressions, but man, did it go much deeper into the the sort of hardwired dysfunction of the Israeli political system. This is not a criticism of the Israeli people um, or any of that kind of stuff. And we got some interesting comments, you know, some pushback from people who kind of disagree with the narrative about why Israel's system is the way it is. Um, it'd be interesting to, you know, like Pod's take was basically Israel was founded as a an army that needed a state rather than a state that needed an army. And a lot of sort of political organizational decisions were made as a result from that. But regardless, the people know that I'm not the biggest fan of parliamentary systems generally, but parliamentary systems with no written out checks and balances, even like a house of Lords kind of deal, right? Or established rules about what is the purview of the court's um, you know, like at least in, in the UK where they have an unwritten constitution, which I'm not in favor of, at least the head of state is, you know, truly separated out from the head of government because you have the monarchy and you also have all sorts of dispersed centers of political power. But like in Israel, nobody, nobody votes on actual personalities, actual human, individual humans for anything. I mean, maybe for like your mayor, but not for like in national politics, you just vote for parties, for lists of parties. And um, so 
the people on the lists, the members of parliament, members of the Knesset, are not responsible to specific voters for anything. You know, and as they, as they talked about on the podcast, you know, it's like Joe Manchin, yeah, he's a Democrat, though he's, he's talking about how he might become an independent, um, but he is not answerable to voters in Connecticut or New York or California. He's only answerable to voters in West Virginia, which is one of the reasons why he might become an independent. But the entire electorate is nationalized entirely for purposes of national government in, in Israel. They don't have a second chamber of, of the legislative branch. And the legislative branch is supreme because it's the prime minister of the legislative branch that is the de facto, you know, head of, I know there is a head of state, the president, but that is truly a toothless position. Anyway, it is, it is amazing that Israelis have managed to sustain as much democratic culture and democratic spirit and liberal culture and liberal spirit given the organization of their political system and how incredibly dumb it is. It's kind of a tribute to the Israeli people in some ways, which is not to say Israelis don't ever make mistakes and the Palestinian question is a real, you know, legitimate question and concern and all that. But anyway, you should listen to it. It's really, really interesting. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting was this argument that Ben-Gurion didn't want a strong Supreme Court didn't want a second branch of government, didn't want any sort of, didn't want a written constitution because he had this sort of very uh, Comtean, as in Auguste Comte, um, notion of progress, that the masses are, are liberal, they're progressive, the progress, sort of, it's sort of a like socialist wiggery that history is moving in a socialist direction and you don't want to have any rocks in the river that is going to slow down that current because the people are always going to be progressive and they're always going to be right. So let's just not have any of this checks and balances stuff. And it's a very East European socialist worldview, which makes sense. And he thought that any institution that could slow things down would inherently be populated by conservatives. And conservatives are bad. And I don't mean conservatives in the American political tradition since a conservative. I mean like small C conservatives, people who say slow down, Let's, you know, let's figure this stuff out. There are reasons why the status quo may be preferable to the next thing. And I just think it's, I mean, like, I, I sort of agree with Ben-Gurion that those institutions should, uh, would be conservative. But I just think that they should be conservative um, and small c conservative. And I think it's just, it's just a sort of fascinating example of how, on the one hand, the, the wrongness of his political philosophy is being demonstrated as we speak, but it also shows how countries can be wrong about things for long periods of time and not be disasters, not be apocalyptic. I mean, there's this sense in America that if we, you know, this executive or if this executive order stands or if this Supreme Court decision stands um, or if this election, blah, 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 America will be over. And this, this attitude, this catastrophizing, which I complain about all the time, is bipartisan you know, obviously manifests itself with di in different scenarios and different concerns. But there is this tendency to say that America can't survive this and can't survive that and blah, 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 blah. And like, and yet you go back and you look at the history of America. We had many, many, many wrong policies. You know, some really obvious ones like slavery and Jim Crow. But, you know, many others, like uh, happy to, you know, 
argue with you about all the wrong policies that came out of the New Deal, but they didn't destroy the country. They were a hindrance to us fulfilling our potential and, and getting more prosperous more quickly. I can make that argument pretty easily, at least in some cases. But like America survived the New Deal. And I say this as someone who's a very big critic of the New Deal and has been known to, you know, maybe not catastrophize about the idea of a second New Deal but or a new New Deal, but I've come close. And, you know, and even slavery, as evil and as horrible as that was, the story of America outside of the story of slavery wasn't one of total ruin. And this gets back to this unity of goodness, the kind of thing is like, you know, it's like, a, you know, Charles Murray has this line about Sweden. When people say, well, you say socialism can't work and blah, 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 blah. And he says, look, there's a well-established finding in social science that says pretty much any bad idea can work for a while in Sweden. Because Sweden has really high levels of, of uh, social capital, a very well-developed sense of, of sort of social solidarity and working together. You know, in Sweden... Um, very, very low emphasis on on individualism. You know, in Sweden, you can um, you can look up your neighbor's tax returns on the web because it's all public, right? Stuff that in America, people start, you know, flicking the safeties on their rifles at the mere suggestion of is just totally common sense, commonplace stuff in Sweden. Anyway, so like, I just think one of the interesting things about the Israel stuff is that Israel, as a matter of sort of fundamental political organization, should have led to a deeper and more horrible tyranny um, by now. You know, the ancients, as Aristotle said, you know, all democracies without, you know, Republican you know, safeguards descend into uh, tyranny. And I'm not saying that that's an iron law or anything like that, but like the Republican, and I'm talking about small r Republican, the small r sort of Republican safeguards in Israel do not reside in the formal institutional, constitutional, in the, in the sort of British sense, rules and bylaws of the country. Because um, they're all, anything, all the formal laws can be changed with a, you know, with a single parliament, which I think is nuts. But those checks on tyranny and oppression, and I know people, there are people on the left, the pro-Palestinian left in particular, who would say there are very few checks on tyranny and, and Israel is a police state and all that kind of stuff. I don't buy that stuff, even if I can sympathize with the plight of Palestinians. But um, all of those safeguards... You know, because there is free speech in Israel. There is freedom of the press in Israel. There's freedom of assembly in Israel. Those safeguards reside in the hearts and minds of Israelis, not in the institutions of government. And I think this is a really, really important point, which I tried to stress in my review of Janine's book a month ago or whenever that was, which is that you can talk about how if we could just change this law or change that, um, um, you know, amend the constitution this way or that or whatever, um, things will be better, right? That things will be, you know, it will pave the way towards a post-liberal Catholic confessional state or whatever your, you know, bizarre fantasy may be. And I do think that's a bizarre fantasy. Um, but as a political theory, conversation, that's all fine and interesting. 
as political science, it is lunacy and stupid because Israel has managed to stay a democracy despite the fact that there are virtually no serious Montesquieuian or Madisonian checks and balances um, in Israel because of the attitudes and expectations of the Israeli people. Americans are a liberal people, a liberal democratic people, and they have certain very well-established, very deeply ingrained expectations and understandings about the role of the state in their lives and how democracy should work, how journalism should work, how this should work, and how that should work. And this idea that if, oh, if we can just turn the knob on presidential power this way and turn the knob, you know, the, the dial on um, the administrative state that way, um, we can get everybody to play along with our political theory is nonsense, just flat nonsense, because you are not going to get American. You're not going to herd 332 million cats into your political theory. This is, I think, one of the most important points to understand about the role of dogma. You know, I, I write and talk about dogma a lot, and not just because it has the word dog in it. Dogma is the stuff that shapes your worldview. It's, it's, not, it's different than ideology, right? Dogma, and I'm very Chestertonian about dogma, but you know, dogma is, comes from like the Greek. It means that which seems good or that which seems right. Um, I think dogma is better understood as sort of the stuff you don't want to argue about anymore that you could argue about and that you could change, but like shouldn't be argued about anymore, right? Ritual human sacrifice, we don't argue about ritual human sacrifice in this country because everybody basically agrees it's settled dogma that that's wrong and should be illegal. And we shouldn't, you know, it's why, why argue about it? You know, because there's no constituency for rounding up, you know, young virgins and throwing them into volcanoes or feeding them to lions or anything like that. And anybody who, seriously started proposing that kind of thing would be mocked, ridiculed, you know, laughed at, uh, checked into a institution of some kind, whatever, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's just something that we don't talk about anymore. I think pedophilia should be, opposition to pedophilia should be a dogmatic thing that we don't argue about anymore. There are people on really fringe corners of of life and of, of, of academia who try every now and then to sort of, you know, bring it, you know, apply some sort of civil rights regime, identity politics regime to pedophiles. There are people on the right who promiscuously use pedophilia as a charge against people who aren't pedophiles. But for the most part, take a hundred Americans at random and ask them, you know, should we really be having a debate about you know, how much space we should have in our society for pedophiles. And 99 and a half are going to be saying, what are you talking about? No, shut up. And this is my view about, this really gets it sort of, I get it a lot from my dad. This is my view about public morality generally, is that not everything should be an argument. I've had this argument with Charlie Cook a bunch of times. He thinks everything is worth debating and he likes to debate and he thinks debate is good and that 
you know, you know, you shouldn't necessarily invite Holocaust deniers to campus, but if you do, you should debate them and blah, 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 blah. And I get it. And, you know, there are nuances and exceptions and specifics for all these kinds of fights that I'm, I'm not trying to get distracted by. But my basic view is like, you know, slavery is a settled issue in this country. Can't have slavery, right? Fought a civil war, amended the Constitution a few times, done. Like, let's not debate whether we should have slavery. Let's not debate whether we should have Jim Crow. Let's not debate whether we should have a regime of eugenics in this country. I think one of the great problems of our culture is that we are so celebratory of intellectual rebelliousness and, and transgressiveness and, you know, questioning taboos that we often lose sight of the fact that lots of taboos are good. Taboos, perform, first of all, there's never been a society in human history that didn't have taboos. The only question is whether or not you're, you, have, you have, some subjects are taboo for good reasons or for bad reasons. And I don't think everything needs to be argued and relitigated over and over and over again. And one of the things I think that is the project of liberals rightly understood in this country and conservatives rightly understood in this country and should be of sort of progressives and I wish even reactionaries is that this country is a liberal democratic country that you're going to argue about the role and size of the welfare state or, you know, meddling in the economy to one extent or another. And, but those conversations really should be between the 40 yard lines that, you know, we're a country that is as the rule of law. We're a country where everybody should be, you know, down with you know, the Bill of Rights and that we shouldn't be revisiting some of these questions, right? I think, and I think the health of society, of our society and the health of our democracy, you know, this phrase I hate, rests on the dogma that is written into, our, into the human heart and not on any piece of parchment. Because if every American tomorrow said, I don't care about the Constitution, the Constitution would have no power, the only thing that gives it power is this broad consensus that we're going to agree that it has power. And this is why civics education is so important. This is why raising children with a, they can be skeptical, they can want government to do more or less and all that kind of stuff, but a healthy appreciation of the fact that this is a good country, that they should be grateful that they were born into it rather than a lot of other places. Um, and that while there's always room for improving things, um, that radical hatred of this country is not only unhealthy and misguided, but stupid. And I think that that's not a crazy thing. And, and when I say radical hatred of this country, I mean on the right or the left, because I think there are examples of it all over the place these days. Um, and, uh, you know, like these people who leapt at this opportunity, I don't want to get distracted, but these people who leapt at this opportunity to compare, uh, uh, Alexei Navalny to Donald Trump. That is the kind of argument that you used to hear throughout the Cold War from left-wingers. You now hear it from you know, sort of like f Federalist MAGA type people. And it is profoundly stupid. It is just so profoundly stupid. This is one of the, getting back to where we were at the beginning, these people who, you know, we we're talking about whether it's good faith or not. Some of the people who are saying this stuff are smart enough to know how stupid it is. And I just cannot make up my mind whether they understand that what they're saying is stupid, but it's great boob bait, or 
whether they are so deep in the tank on this nonsense that they can't see how the stupidity of what they're saying. Um, it's sort of like, you know, my gripe about the people who are calling the January 6th hearings Stalinist show trials. Now, I get that show trial. A lot of people don't know what a show trial is. And like, if you want to call it a show trial, I don't like it. I will criticize it. But if you drag in the modifier, the adjectival, you know, modifier Stalinist, you are trying to signify that you know what Stalinism and Stalinist show trials were about. And to call what happened with the January 6th committee a Stalinist show trial is so sand-poundingly stupid, so profoundly, immorally anti-historical. It, 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 you know, people know I'm a big anti-communist guy and I was raised that way, but like, if you read the accounts of people who went through Stalinist show trials, the KGB or the NKVD or whatever would put guns to the heads of these people's children to make them sign confessions. Sometimes they'd have to kill one of the kids to get them to sign a false confession, right? Raping wives, you know, having all your teeth knocked out before you sign a confession and then have to, you know, at, you know, uh, say it in, in public for fear of going through that again. If you compare, if you think that it's an apt comparison, a bunch of hack Democrats calling witnesses to testify um, in front of a committee about the stuff that Trump did, you're such a bad player in our politics if you think that's a serious comparison. Um, and, you know, Newt Gingrich did it. Lots of people did it. Anyway, my point is, is like the biggest safeguard against tyranny in this country is the constitution of our own hearts and minds and not the constitution that's under glass at the National Archives. That sort of was one of my takeaways, my, my ruminating takeaways from the Israel stuff is that I'm not sure there are that many ethnic groups or ethnic group is, you know, it's complicated with Jews and Israelis because it's such a melting pot, but it's also this Jewish thing and religion, ethnicity, Ashkenazis, Sephardim, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, it is a remarkable thing, something that the founding fathers would not have anticipated, that you could have a country that could go more than a half a century with no Madisonian checks and balances to speak of and not descend into something, no matter how bad you think Israel is, uh, it's remarkable, and I don't think Israel's bad, but uh, it's remarkable that they still have elections at all, right? I mean, because that's just... You would think that the safeguard, without the safeguards, you wouldn't get it. And I think it's it's something to to think about. And I guess that's, I, I'm done with that. Okay, so I was going to talk about this thing. I, I know I teased it about kids and this age verification stuff for porn. Maybe I'll write about it instead. I just, uh, I think it's a great example of how small legislative techniques. So what's happened is, just in case you don't know what I'm talking about, there was a political piece this week about how age verification laws in some states are causing the big players in porn like Pornhub and others to just leave the states all, all together because compliance with age verification stuff is so difficult. You could be pro Pornhub and pro internet porn or anti or whatever. I think my views are kind of known, but it is a remarkable example of the, the restorative, the self-improving, the, the um, self-healing nature of democracy and public policy in the sense that if you think online porn is a problem, particularly for minors, there's a tendency out there in our sort of 
You can't fight progress. You can't fight technology. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And so we're just going to have to live forever in a world where little kids can get, you know, hardcore porn with a couple clicks. It turns out that's not the case. And it's not that you have to become some sort of police state. There are relatively modest legislative fixes that can can wildly reduce, you know, access to, to porn. I don't think it can eliminate them, right? But it seems to me that's something to keep in mind. Anyway, maybe I'll write about it or I can talk about it next week. I almost forgot. So speaking of Adam, let me see if I can find... Hey, if, while, while I'm trying to do this, if somebody out there is doing tech support <laughs> or knows how to fix this problem, send please send me an email. I have devices that I can't text... Like my texts won't go through to some people from some devices, but they will from other devices. And I won't get their texts from some people on some devices and vice versa. It's a huge problem with my wife. I cannot figure out how to fix it. I, I think I've got the settings the way they're supposed to be. But if I'm missing something obvious, please send me a note. I can, I just, it's driving me crazy. Anyway, I found Adam's text from yesterday on my phone, but not on my computer where I also get texts from Adam, but not here. The Remnant is a finalist in the news and politics category for this year's podcast awards. And I did not know, I will be honest, I did not know such awards existed, or I, I guess I probably assumed they existed, but uh, I don't know very much about the process or anything like that. I asked the Dom if it's like the public gets to vote. He said no, but they do have listeners checking in for all these podcasts. So I'm not going to look, do a Donald Trump thing and say I want all Remnant listeners to march peacefully down to the podcast awards headquarters um, and make their passions known or anything like that. Um, and frankly, some of the other podcast finalists are podcasts I hadn't heard of, so I, I, I have questions and all that. But all things being equal, it'd be cool if we won an award. Um, and um, um, so if you're listening out there and you have an ability to vote in this thing. Again, I don't really understand how to do it. Um, um, we humbly beseech you to do what you think is right or something like that. But um, it's an honor. Let me put it this way. It's an honor just to be nominated. You know, the commentary podcast isn't in there. The editors isn't in there. Dispatch podcast isn't in there. Just the remnant. And um, which is, befits this flagship podcast of Dispatch Media. Since I've now gone an hour 20 in, I will spare you some of the changes that are coming down the pike with um, podcasts. We are going to create, I don't think we're going to call it a super feed, but those of you who know what super feeds are, they're basically a feed that you can subscribe to that has all of our stuff. And um, all of our stuff means not just public podcasts that anyone can get, but also the private podcasts. And we haven't figured out all the bells and whistles yet. It's been an ongoing argument. Um, I shouldn't say argument, discussion, conversation, um, collaboration, uh, a, a veritable minion of, of sober and spiritual contemplation about what our podcast strategy should be. But uh, one of the ideas, one of the plans is for the solo remnant, either in whole or in part, will at some point go behind a paywall. And there's going to be a lot of other stuff in there. We're going to do a lot of AMAs in there and all that kind of stuff. And 
I'll just be brutally honest. I've been dragging my feet on this idea um, because I'm so devoted to you, dear listeners. But um, it makes sense for the business and the business has to come first. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen tomorrow or anything like that. Um, we're still working out a lot of kinks because we want it to be a seamless process. But at some point, there is going to be, whether we call it the speakeasy, Steve, of course, wants to call it Junto. Don't get me started. But at some point, I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, four subscriber only content in this thing. And so are a bunch of the rest of us. I'll probably drag Kevin in to debate him about this or that or Sarah or whatever. So you should just know it's coming down the pike when exactly remains to be seen, how exactly remains to be seen. Um, but the why is pretty much established. Um, we think it's necessary for the business. and um, But we will try to make it as enticing as conceivably possible for those listeners out there who are not subscribers to the dispatch to become subscribers and then seamless, maybe even joyful, to be able to get access to this stuff without a lot of technological bells and whistles. Um, but that's where the conversation is. Nothing is definite yet, but that's the direction we're moving, or we seem to be moving, and I figured I should just start educating the consumer now. So with that, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Um, thanks for putting up with my craziness. I might have more travel craziness th next week because there's all this drama with my daughter that I don't want to overshare, hear about. Um, um, so I may be taking her to school to start school again, um, or we may be sending her to Europe. It's complicated. Um, just don't know yet. It's there's drama. There's drama in capital city. If by capital city, you mean the Goldberg household. Um, so, uh, with that, thanks again. And, um, I'll talk to you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.